Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, most people probably come to church thinking that a preacher is going to preach on Palm Sunday, but instead we're in Jonah this morning. Why? Because we've been here for a while, and we're going to finish up the book of Jonah this morning. And so I've enjoyed, as we've been working our way through over these past few months, uh, going through the book of Jonah. And uh, I, uh, I was texting with Isaac this morning, and uh, Isaac is usually the one that leads our music, and uh, he's, he does such an awesome job. And uh, he's pr- I know he's not watching the service, so I can say nice things about him, because uh, uh, that's just the way he is. But anyway, he, he told me this morning, he said, man, he said, I'm, I'm missing the last service in the book of Jonah. He said, I'm so disappointed about it. I said, Isaac, I got great news. We have live stream. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't know. Maybe he's on there. Maybe not. I'll probably get a text message here in a moment. But my phone's silent, so I won't get it, Isaac. So, uh, but uh, thankful, uh, thankful for him. And uh, I sure miss it whenever he's not here and uh, leading the music. I feel like uh, he's done such a wonderful job, such a blessing um, as he's helped our worship service really just to go to another level. And I'm so thankful for him and for everybody that's involved with that. Um, and uh, we sure miss him. Look forward to having him back with us next week. Jonah chapter number four is where we're going to be. This morning, as we get started, before we dive into the scriptures, let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help, and, uh, and then we'll dive into God's word together this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for what we have seen from the life and the story of Jonah over these past months. God, as, as you have been speaking, as you have been working, God, as you have ministered to my heart as I've studied and, and as I've preached, I pray, God, t- today, once again, that, God, you would just meet with us in a unique way. Father, I, I pray now for each person that's here, that, Lord, I know there's a lot of things on our minds, a lot of things on our hearts, things that we need to do this week, and, and even what's coming up next weekend. You know, God, there's a lot of things that, that, that is on my mind as well. I pray, God, for a few moments that you just help each and every one of us to bring our thoughts into captivity and to be able to focus on your word. I ask, Lord, that you'd speak through me, and I've already asked you to, to, to fill me with your spirit, but I ask you again, God, just help me, God, to, to only say those things that you want me to say. And I pray, God, for each person that's here, that they would hear from you. Lord, we need you this morning. I need you. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to be able to move in our midst. And, Father, we would see you do a wonderful work this morning in our church and in each and every heart. We pray all of this in your Son, Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been working our way through the book of Jonah last week, we we began into chapter number 4. And we saw last week as Jonah the prophet responded to the great revival that broke out in Nineveh. And while most of us would leap for joy over one sinner coming to repentance, the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that comes to repentance. Jonah's reaction was quite different from that which we would have responded with most likely. The Bible tells us that rather than Jonah leaping for joy at the great revival of over maybe as many as 600,000 people turning to God, Jonah's response was not joy, was not happiness. Jonah's response was anger. (laughs) He he was angry about the people uh, turning to God. He was angry about Nineveh turning to the Lord. Ultimately, uh, Jonah being controlled by his emotions in verse number 1 and and resisting God's plan and, and, and ultimately making it all about himself, it led to the point that Jonah was disappointed with God and what God's plan was. God knew where things were going to go. He knew that this immature and self-centered prophet, that, that listen, that, that Jonah w- was, was going to go down this path. Uh, uh, and so God 
comes to Jonah, this, this immature, this self-centered, this, 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 this self-focused prophet that, that really he, he wanted it all about him, is angry about God working, and God comes to Jonah in verse number 4, and he asks him a provoking question. Look at verse number 4. God comes to him and he says, Doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, what are you upset about? What, what right do you have... To be angry. That's what the Lord is, is asking him here. Here Jonah, the Bible tells us, Jonah just, I mean, he, he's already begun to pout. And it's just going to get worse. I, I can almost picture, because I have children, uh, you know, I can almost picture Jonah sitting there and, and with his arms folded and with his lips stuck out as he's sitting there just, I mean, just angry, frustrated, pouting. Because why? Because he didn't get his way in the situation. He was upset because things didn't go the way that he wanted them to go. And God looks at him, and it's almost like God looks at him and says, who do you think that you are, Jonah? Who do you think you are to, to, to come to this place and to, 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 to feel this way about what I'm doing? And, and to say, do, doest thou well to be angry? Who do you think that you are? And when God asks a question, he expects an answer. But rather than answer, Jonah dives further into throwing this little fit. He dies further into this pity party that he's having. And, and, and listen, this is incredible because according to verse number, f- verse number five, Jonah exits out of the city at that point. So all of this is taking place apparently inside the city limits. I mean, can you just imagine as, as people are falling on their knees and repenting to God and, and the king is causing everybody to sit down in sackcloth and ashes and Jonah's right in the middle of it all. And what is he doing? I can't believe this is happening. I mean, like, it's just unbelievable to me that, that he's, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so what does Jonah do? Well, well, Jonah just takes his pity party to a whole nother level. Look at verse number five. The Bible says, And Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. He marches out and, and he finds a hill that he can sit down on and he can just watch to see what's going to happen. The Bible tells us that he creates this, this booth that has the idea of a, of a tent or, or kind of a lean-to structure. But clearly, Jonah wasn't much of a, of a carpenter or much of a, uh, of a construction worker because clearly, as we're going to see, the sun uh, continued to shine down on him even through his little structure that, that he had created. And there he is sitting underneath that little structure, that little lean-to where he's got this vantage point of the city, and he sits there with his arms folded, lip pouted how, sitting there watching. And, and listen, he's watching. Why? Because Jonah still had hope that maybe God would still destroy Nineveh. That, that's what he says there, till he might see what would become of the city. He's still sitting there, and he's still holding out hope. I know God said that he's going to give them mercy, but maybe, just maybe, God will still destroy him. Maybe, just maybe, God will give me what I want. God wanted them to be destroyed. Jonah wanted him to be destroyed. He wanted the city to collapse. He wanted to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, come on, rain down fire upon this place. I mean, completely wipe these people out. That's what would have made Jonah happy in his mind. Why? Because it was all about Jonah and what he wanted. We saw that last week. 
So since Jonah was acting like a little kid and throwing a fit, God treats him like one. And God gives Jonah an object lesson. And this object lesson is, is very, I mean, it's, it's an incredible object lesson. We're going to dive into it for just a few moments this morning. But it's, it's power. There's, there's some meaning behind it that I think is important for us to see today. Verse number 6, the Bible tells us, And the Lord God prepared a gourd. Now, I don't know if you underline, if you circle in your Bible, but I would encourage you, if you do, to, to underline, to circle that word prepared. God prepares four times in the book of Jonah. The first time that he prepared was whenever he prepared the great fish to swallow Jonah. It's always a blessing, and we, we mentioned it some time ago, but, but any time that Jonah seemed to be going off track, God was so gracious and so merciful that he went after him, and, and God did something. It's, it's amazing as you look through there. When Jonah went down to Joppa, God, God steps in and sends a storm. When, when Jonah gets thrown into to the sea and says, I just assume just die, God prepares a fish to swallow him up. I mean, it's just over and over again. God steps in and, and intervenes on Jonah's behalf, and, and, and here we come again, and the Bible tells us that God prepared a ghoul and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. It literally means deliver him from his evil, from the evil that was in his heart. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day. And it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that... He fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. In these three verses, God God attempts to teach Jonah a lesson by way of an object lesson. I mean, he just really brings it down to the bottom level. I know uh, whenever I was growing up, I always enjoyed whenever uh, a teacher would come in, a preacher would come in, and especially with kids, would do an object lesson. I, I don't know. It's, even as adults sometimes, I think it's good to, to actually see something physical. It captures our attention whenever we get to see it. And, and, and sometimes that's the best way to learn. How many of you would say, you know, uh, you know when, when you were going through school, a teacher could stand up and they could speak and they could speak and they could speak and it would go in one ear and write out the other. How many you were like me yes okay you know oh, but but I, but if the teacher would show me would demonstrate it if they would give me an example then I could look at it and I'd say oh that's how you do it and then I was good to go okay uh, Nina uh, what is an object lesson show me how to do it don't just tell me so what did God do God gives Jonah this object lesson God prepares this gourd a plant that, that quickly grew up and gave sh- shade to Jonah. And the Bible says that Jonah was exceeding glad. It's interesting. As you study the, the book of Jonah from, from verse 1 all the way to the end of the book, this is the only time that Jonah is happy about anything. I don't think he was a very fun guy to be around. I just don't, okay? I mean, you just, you just look at his life and, and look at how he was. The, the Bible tells us that, listen, he was exceeding glad. Why? Because this gourd was shading him. Again, it was all about him. It doesn't say that he was glad when he reached the ship, when he was fleeing away. It, it doesn't say that he was glad whenever the fish spit him up on dry land. You would think that would have been a place to be happy. It doesn't say, obviously, that he was glad when Nineveh repented. No, it was when God made a plant to grow up and give him some shade to make him feel better that he was finally happy. But then in verse number 7, the Bible tells us that God prepared, there it is again, a worm to kill the plant so that it withered away. And then in verse number 8, God prepared 
a vehement east wind, this, 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 this strong wind to blow in, and then the sun shines down, and Jonah, Jonah was hot. In fact, he, he was so hot that he found himself back in the same place that he had been back in verse number 3 of chapter number 4, wishing that he could just die. Now, now at first glance, as we look at those three verses, it would be easy to look and say, well, that was kind of cruel of God. You know, I mean, you, you really look at it. I mean, here's this prophet. He's having a bad day, a bad month. I mean, maybe a bad life. I don't know. But I mean, he's just he, he's having a rough time, okay? And, and finally, he gets to this place where, where he's going to sit out there, and God prepares this gourd to go up over him, this plant to give him some shade, and finally, he's happy. I mean, isn't that what God wants for all of us? I mean, doesn't he just want us to be happy? Isn't that what you've heard? Yeah, that's a big lie. Anyway, and so, you know, that, that's, that's what he thought. Finally, God's just making me happy. This is what I've always wanted. And then what does God do? Immediately. I mean, right, right afterwards, God kills the plant. I mean, it's just like, oh, man, man what, a, what a rough day. And at first glance, we look and say, man, that was kind of cruel of God to give Jonah this little bit of hope and then to take it away. But listen, friend, there's so much more to this than meets the eye. And, and that's why we, we actually have to, to dive in, because there's some incredible lessons that we find in these verses that if we dive a little bit deeper, are so powerful, so helpful, so encouraging to us. You see, this, this plant that the Bible refers to, this plant that grew up and gave shade to Jonah, most believe it was the plant known as the palm crist, also called the, the palm of, of Christ. This, this palm that, that, that grew up, it, it was a plant that secretes a castor oil from its seeds that would use for numerous medicinal purposes. It was used to, to, for, for, for wounds and for relief on things. I mean, it, it served a great purpose. It, it was a plant that God calls to, 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 to grow so quickly and give shade to Jonah. The only thing that made Jonah happy, this entire book that God put there in Jonah's place. It's amazing because this, this emphasis of joy, this exceeding joy, is clearly in direct contrast to Jonah's emotions in verse 1. In verse number 1, it said that Jonah was displeased exceedingly and that he was very angry. Directly it contrasts one from the other. Here the city of Nineveh has revival. And Jonah's angry about it. But when this plant God prepares over Jonah, oh, he's exceedingly glad. Jonah was all about mercy and favor when he was the recipient. Isn't that the way that we are? are? We're all about God's mercy when it's for us. We've mentioned it before, but, but as teenagers, I mean, that there's probably no time in our life that we desire grace and mercy more than, than I mean, we, I mean it's, it's just the way it is. I mean, you come home and you've been where you weren't supposed to be, or you stayed out later than, than what mom and dad said you were supposed to come home, and, and you pull in the drive and you see the light is still on. And you're thinking to yourself, oh no, <laughs> you know, you know what's coming. And you walk in that door. What do you want more than anything in the world in that moment? Mercy, right? You know, you, you want to receive mercy. Please, mom and dad, just, just show me some, some mercy. But listen, mercy and grace, that, that's the thing that we want most. But it's the thing that we struggle so much to give to somebody else. Right? 
That's why Jesus is so incredible because in John 1.14 it tells us that he was full of grace and truth. He, he was perfect in both. He was perfect with mercy and with grace, but he was also perfect with truth. He was the perfect mixture of both. And the truth is, is most of us are heavy on one or the other most of the time. Sometimes we're really heavy on truth, right? A judgment, right? And, and, or we're really heavy on, on grace and we let him get away with everything, right? And, and there's supposed to be this, this balance between the two. And the truth is, is when it comes to us, we don't want judgment. We want mercy when it comes to everybody else. We want judgment, not mercy. Here, Jonah, what did he want? He wanted judgment for Nineveh. Oh, but God, thank you for the mercy for me. Thank you for the shade tree. Thank you for this palm, Chris, to, to give me some shade, to hide me from. Oh, I'm just so happy uh, that, that I have this, this, this mercy. But the next one that God prepares is, is, is I mean, I, really, if you've missed everything to this point, I, I, there's a nugget of truth here. That's so cool. It's so powerful. And listen, this isn't the point of the whole message, but I mean, it, this is powerful. Verse number seven, the Bible tells us, and God prepared a worm. Now, now listen, if you're like me, when I, I have read this, I don't know how many times, okay, read, read through this and read about this worm. And, uh, you know, and, and my, my idea, you know, I grew up in Indiana. We, we went fishing, and oftentimes we'd use night crawlers, right, okay? We, we used worms, you know, out here. Uh, we, we had some friends that came out the other day, and they said, what do you fish? What's the best thing to fish with out here? And I said, oh, you should use worms. And if anything's going to bite, it's going to be worms. You know, you could dig in the ground. And so when I think of worms, I think of this little red, uh, wrinkly thing that, you know, and you take it and you split it in half with your fingers, and, and uh, you, you know, and, and I mean, that's, that's what I think of when I think of worms. But, but that's not the type of worm that it's talking about here. In fact, the, the word worm in the Bible has a couple of different Hebrew words that, that are translated for worm. But this one in particular is a different word for, from what's used nine times out of ten in the Old Testament. The, this, this Hebrew word is the Hebrew word tola. Tola. The, this Hebrew word tola, it, it was translated as worm here in Jonah. But in other portions of the scripture, sometimes, many times, it's translated as crimson. Crimson. That's interesting because if you ask me, if you said, Kyle, uh, we're going to play this, this game where, where I'm going to say a word and you've got to think of another word that goes with it. And you said, worm, the first word that popped in my mind would not have been crimson. Okay, So, so why, why do these things go together? Why would, would they have translated here in verse number 7, why would they have called this, this a worm instead of a crimson? Well, Context is everything, okay? And so that's the reason. But, but, but even more so, the, the worm that it was referring to is known over in the, the Middle East as the crimson worm. So it's an actual worm. And in fact, this, this crimson worm, it, it actually doesn't look so much like a worm like we would think of. It looks like a, a little, little grub. And, and as we study into this, we find some incredible, incredible things. See, this, this worm in Jonah, this crimson worm that's found in the Middle East, when it's time for it to, to reproduce, it will crawl up onto a tree or a post, and it fastens itself to that tree. It creates kind of this, this shell over it. 
this hard shell that's, that's extremely hard to, to penetrate into it. And while it's inside of the shell, it makes the shell, inside of that shell, it lays its, its eggs. It, it has its, its, its children, right? Its babies. And for three days after those babies are born, they eat on that mother. Interesting, right? Okay, while she's alive. Isn't nature just wonderful? You know, (laughs) these these little worms that that are inside there, they eat on this mother. And as they do that, the mother secretes this red, this red liquid, this red uh, uh, substance that, that comes from it. And, and this, this red substance, it's so potent that, that it dyes the tree that it's hanging on red in that spot. And, and listen, it covers its eggs, or it covers its babies, and it dyes them red as well. And they will be red for the rest of their lives. After a few days when the babies grow to the point that they can take care of themselves, the mother dies on that tree. During the time of the Bible, the bodies of these dead worms, these crimson worms, were scraped from the trees and and they were dried and then ground up into a powder and used as a dye to color garments red. After three days, the dead mother worm's body loses its crimson color and turns into this white wax that over time falls to the ground like snow. This word, tola, found throughout the Old Testament. Let me share with you another place that this word is found. Isaiah chapter number 1, verse number 18. The Bible says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as, here it is, scarlet, red, crimson, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like, here it is, crimson, they shall be as wool. It's interesting. Because you could, you could almost take that word right there where it says, though they be red like crimson. And it could say, though they be red like a crimson worm. They shall be white as, as snow. The book of Joshua, when the nation of Israel comes to take over the nation of Jericho. We know the Bible tells us that they spent, sent spies in to spy out where this, this place is. And whenever they got in, they, they found a woman there that we know as Rahab the harlot. Okay, We, we, we know the story. We know, about, we know her name and we know her reputation. It wasn't good. And there they are with her, and, and she, she, she begins to talk with them. And, and she asks them for one request. She says, listen, I know that God has delivered the city to you guys. And she said, I know what's going to happen. But can I just ask one thing? Will, will you preserve the life of me and my family whenever you take over this place? And do you remember how they would, would know which house was, was, was Rahab's? Outside the window was draped a little thread. Remember what color that thread was? Scarlet. Joshua 2.21, the Bible says, And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet line in the window. Hey, listen, there's almost no question that that scarlet thread, how was it dyed? It was probably dyed by the blood, the death of that crimson worm. 
that scarlet thread that we can find all throughout the scriptures. Hey, there's another place that we find it. And, and maybe no, no other passage that's, that's more powerful, I guess you could say, more important uh, that has to deal with this, this tola, this, this crimson worm, this, this crimson color. And that's in Psalm chapter number 22. It's known as, as a shepherd's psalm. We, we all know Psalm chapter number 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We, we would recognize that. But, but Psalm chapter number 22 is somewhat of a prophetic, messianic psalm of, of the coming Messiah. In fact, verse number 1 tells us, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We recognize that as the words Jesus cried out on the cross. But in verse number 6, listen to what the Bible says. But I am a worm. There it is. And no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. This messianic song, that song that points to Christ, says if Jesus is saying, I am a crimson worm. Think about the picture of this worm. Just like that crimson worm, Jesus fastened himself to the tree. Listen, there was nobody that that did it. The Bible tells us, we'll talk about it next week, but when Jesus went up on that hill, when he went up on Golgotha, that when he went up there, they didn't have to grab him and hold him down whenever they were driving the nails into his hands and into his feet. I mean, well, many times we, people that would get up there and, and listen, they were beaten to the point that they had hardly any energy left in their bodies. And yet a last effort would be made to try to escape from those Roman guards as they would try to, to get away one last time, knowing that this was it. Once they were fastened, they weren't coming back down. And they tried with everything that they could to get away. They can almost see those Roman guards preparing to grab Jesus because they knew the stories about him. They knew the testimonies of his power and the things that he had done. As they gathered around, getting ready to grab him and do everything they could to hold him down to that cross. And Jesus, as he went there and laid down his life. Oh, listen, it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the tree. The Bible's very clear. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have spoken the word and that would have been it. No, it was Jesus' love that held him to that cross. Just like that crimson worm, what, what, giving her life for her children, for, for those that she loved. I don't know if a worm can love. But listen, it's exactly what Jesus did. Just like that crimson worm giving himself so that others could have life. Just like that crimson worm that gave his blood to wash over those who trust in him for salvation. Oh, praise God. In Revelation chapter number 1, verse number 5, the Bible says, And from Jesus, who was the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins. How? In his own blood. In 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 19, But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's a lot of churches that don't like to talk about the blood of Christ. There are, there are some versions of the scripture uh, that, that have taken out completely the word blood from it because they don't want blood. They, they don't like the picture that it gives. But listen, friend, if it wasn't for the blood of Christ, we would have absolutely no hope at all. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 22, and almost all things by the law purged with blood. 
And without the shedding of blood is no remission. Friend, we cannot have salvation. We cannot have eternity. We cannot have forgiveness of our sins. Except for Jesus Christ fasting himself on that cross. Giving his life. And shedding his blood for us. And so God prepared a gourd. That gave Jonah what he wanted. Gave him temporary happiness. And then God prepared this crimson worm. To destroy that gourd. This picture that was so much bigger than what Jonah could see. And then finally we see that God prepared that east wind. The Bible tells us in verse number 8. And it came to pass when the sun did rise. That God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. I, this is interesting. When, when the sun rose that next day, God, God sent a scorching. That's what that word vehement has to, what it means. It, it was a scorching wind. The, the wind and the sun, they were so hot that Jonah is now literally at the point of death. The Bible says that he's fainted within himself. He fainted. In verse number three of the chapter, Jonah Wanted to die because he didn't get his way. He was disappointed because God didn't do things the way that he thought they should have been done. But now God has given him a very real object lesson. God's brought him to the point of literal death. To get Jonah's attention. So here Jonah is at this point. God has put this object lesson right in front of him. I mean this clear object lesson for him. And then God asks him that question a second time. It's a little bit different. We'll see why in just a second. Verse number 9. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry? That's the question that he asked back in verse number 4. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Jonah, do you still have the right to be angry about the gourd? And Jonah's reply demonstrates that through everything that God had done, he still didn't get it. He he looks and says, yes, I'm so mad that I could die. (laughs) I mean, listen, Jonah, I mean, he wrote the book of Jonah we're going to see in just a second. and, and, And as you look through it, there's a lot of times. Jonah did everything that Jonah said was true. But Jonah, I, he, he was clearly a preacher because he liked to exaggerate things to the extreme, okay? Now listen, it was true. Everything that he said was true. The whale was true. I mean, everything that happened, there's, it, it absolutely happened. But Jonah took everything to the extreme. He said, oh yeah, you think that went that far? Well, let me tell you how much further it actually went. And, that's, that's exa- and so here he is. He says, listen, he says, I'm so angry, I could just die. I mean, he's, he's just to that point. And so God realigns Jonah's attention. And this, I mean, this is, this is where it's at. Verses 10 to 11. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much The time has finally come for God to set Jonah straight on some things. 
I mean, this whole way through, God is just mercy after mercy after mercy after mercy for Jonah. But here at this point, God sits Jonah down and says, Jonah, it's time for me and you to have a talk. It's time for me. Okay, Jonah, I got your attention. You think you're to the point of death. You think that you're at your wit's end. He said, Jonah, I'm done with your your pity party. I'm done with you throwing this fit. Jonah, I'm done with the... Listen, God is done with Jonah making it all about himself. He gives Jonah this last chance. Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the gourd? The one that seemingly came out of nowhere and then seemingly out of nowhere this incredible crimson worm devoured it. Who do you think you are, Jonah? And then God answers the unasked question throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah, who do you think you are? When Jonah was on the boat... And the fishermen were fighting the waves. They came to the point that they couldn't do anything else. Finally, they realized there was somebody that was bigger than them. Who do you think you are? Oh, we're nobody. We can't get out of this. We can't do anything. And before the end of chapter number one, they're worshiping and offering sacrifices to the God of heaven. Jonah in chapter number 2, he's in the belly of that fish for three days, the Bible tells us. He refused to get things right until finally that third day. By the end of that day, Jonah, he he finally comes and he cries out to God for repentance. He realizes what? There's somebody bigger than me. And we saw in verse number 9 of chapter number 2, as Jonah came and he said, Listen, I'm going to, to, to give what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. God, my life is in your hands. And by the end of chapter number 2, he was redirecting his life to the God of heaven. Chapter number three. Jonah walks into the city of Nineveh. This, this wicked, awful city of Nineveh. This city that was full of idolatry. The city that was full of, of witchcraft. The city that was full of themselves. And this city that was driven by status and self-worship and, and, and idol worship. And, and here the Bible tells us that God brought them to their knees by an eight-word message by a prophet that was rebelling against God. They came to the place The realization that there was somebody that was bigger than them. And for the end of chapter number three, they were worshiping and repenting to the God of heaven. But now here we come to chapter number four. And Jonah has forgotten that time in the belly of that fish so quickly. I feel like that should have stuck with him a little bit longer. He's dug in his heels. Refusing to submit to God. While every person in the previous three chapters had to answer that question in their heart, who do you think you are? Oh, we're just a bunch of lousy fishermen. Oh, but you're the great God. Oh, Jonah in chapter number two. Oh, I, I'm just this, I'm just a prophet, but I'm I'm no good for anything. And God, I'm I feel like I'm I'm in the pit of hell right now, and I'm just and God, I I'd give my whole life to you. Oh, that's who I am. And, and in chapter number three, all the all the Ninevites, oh, we thought we had it all together and we thought we knew what we were doing. And we thought it was all about us, but we see that there's somebody bigger than us. God, it's all about you in chapter number four God comes to him and said Jonah who do you think you are doest thou well to be angry Jonah says I'm not I'm not answering that question nope 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 you can't make me God says okay Jonah who do you think you are it's my way or the highway now God's setting things straight so he looks at Jonah and he says you have no right to be angry about that gourd and what happened to it. I made that gourd 
And I made it disappear. I sent that wind that could take your life. And I have every right to do my will and give mercy to Nineveh. Jonah, it's not about you. It's about me. Who do you think you are? It's interesting because the book of Jonah, the last verse, ends with a question mark. God asked this question to Jonah, and he says, Jonah, who do you think you are? I mean, come on, I created the gourd, I made it withered away, it's, I'm the one that's in power of it. You have no right to be angry about that gourd. And Jonah, it's all up to me whether I spare Nineveh or not. It's all up to me whether I show Nineveh mercy or not. J- Jonah, uh, should not I have spared Nineveh, that great city, wherein there's uh, as many as 600,000 people? We know there's 120,000 that don't know their right hand from the left. Uh, many believe that the talk talking about little children. He says, listen, there's 120,000 little kids that don't even know the right hand from the left. There's many 600,000 people in the city of Nineveh. And then on top of that, I mean, here Jonah is again, there's a bunch of animals as well. And listen, do you not think that I should show mercy to them? Question mark in the book ends. It's like, well, what happened next? I mean, where, where do we go from here? Who do you think you are? Same God that had control over the sea in chapter number one. Had control over the fish in chapter number two. And had control over mercy in chapter number three. Same God that had control over that gourd, that worm, and that wind in chapter number four. And he has control over the situations in your life as well. So this morning... You and I think that we can sit back like Jonah. Decide that we're going to be disappointed with God. With the way things are going in our life. The way situations are happening. We look at things in our life and say, you know, that's not the way that I thought it was going to work out. That's not the way that I would have done things. If I had had my own way, how many times have we said that? It would have went like this. And we sit back and, and, and... no, we wouldn't say it audibly, but there's a part of us that, man, we're, we've become disappointed with God. We sit back and we shake, shake our heads and put out our lip and cross our arms. I just wish, I just wish that it had gone this way or that way. Or We're disappointed. Friend, this morning, it's a simple question. Who do you think you are? Say, Kyle, that doesn't feel good. I don't like that. Yeah, well, neither do I. So, but we're all in the same boat here. See, if God decided to put you in a prison like he did with Joseph to further his plan, that's up to him. If God decided for you to be chased around and hated and somebody to go after your life like he did with David when Saul chased him around, hey, that's up to him. If God decided to allow you to be persecuted by the religious crowds of the day because you were a little different, like the disciples, hey, that's up to him. Friend, who do you think you are that we can stand up like Jonah and say, well, I'm angry about the way that this thing went. 
I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about that. No, friend, that gourd was made by God, was destroyed by God, and it always belonged to God. And the sooner that we learn to live our lives with an open hand to God, the sooner we will have the right to answer that question. Who do you think you are? I'm not God, I'm nobody. I'm yours. There's good news as we finish today. Because while we don't have a verse that tells us that Jonah turned to God in chapter number four, like we saw all the other people in the previous chapters, we know that he did. You say, Kyle, how do you know that we did, that he did? Did you find another copy of Scripture somewhere, and you, you translate from the Hebrew, and now you understand that, that this is, is that what happened? Did you, no, 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 listen, friend, I didn't do that, okay? Um, I haven't been to the Middle East before. It'd be fun, but I have not done that, okay? I'm not looking for the book of Jonah, and chapter number five, okay? How do we know? Because Jonah's the author of this book. Because Jonah penned these words. His answer to God's question, who do you think you are, is the four chapters that we've studied over this last couple of months. And that's great news. Because as we've said from the beginning of the book of our study of Jonah, this book isn't about Jonah and the whale. In fact, this book isn't even about Jonah and God. This book is all about God and his mercy. And God was so merciful that he allowed this backslidden, self-centered, immature prophet to write a book titled after his own name, Jonah. And today, if you walked into the service angry and frustrated or disappointed with God, can I encourage you to look at the life of Jonah and be reminded of that question. Who do you think you are? It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It isn't about you and your whale of a situation or problem. It's all about him. All about bringing him glory. Friend, this morning, in your life, if you have situations, if you have things that you're going through, and maybe you look and say, that's not the way I wanted it to go. That's not the way I wanted it to turn out. You have two choices. You can be the Jonah in Jonah chapter number four that looked at God and said, no. Or you can be the Jonah after chapter number four that clearly finally said, okay, God, you're in control. This morning, I hope that you come to the Lord with open hands before him and say, God, my life is not my own. I belong to you. Let's have heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. We're going to have a brief time at the end of the service where we give an opportunity for people to respond to the Lord. The Holy Spirit has spoke to your heart this morning. I hope that you'll respond to him. You say, Kyle, what's that look like? Well, listen, friend, it's, it's an opportunity for you just to talk to God. It's an opportunity for you to come to the Lord and, and just say, God, I, you spoke to me in this way, and, 
And you convicted me about this. And God, I know there's some things that I need to get right. Maybe you need to do that this morning. Listen, friend, you can do that in your seat. You can come to an altar and do that. Maybe you're here this morning as we were talking about that crimson worm and the picture of Christ on the cross. And you were sitting thinking, man, that's an incredible story. I've heard it before. But what does that mean for me? The Bible tells us that all of sin to come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. That means you, that means me. And the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. That means eternity in a lake of fire. And this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never asked Him to forgive you for your sins, then the Bible tells us you're on the way to that lake of fire. But there's great news. Because of Jesus' death on that cross, because He gave His life willingly, He paid the price for your sins. The Bible tells us that He gives you the gift of eternal life. How do you receive it? The Bible tells us that if we call upon the name of the Lord, if we come to Him, if we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth, That Jesus Christ, yes, he died for my sins. He rose again that third day. We say, Jesus, will you forgive me for my sins? Friend, you can have that promise of eternity in heaven. Wherever you are this morning, whoever you are this morning, I hope you'll answer that question. Who do you think you are? If you come to the Lord with a fist, or, or maybe it's not a tightly clenched fist, but you come to the Lord and it's, it's not an open hand before the Lord saying, Lord, my life is all yours. And listen, friend, you might find yourself right where Jonah was. This morning, it's a wonderful opportunity to come to God, see his mercy, and respond to him. With heads bowed and with eyes closed, We're going to have a time of invitation. Let's stand together as the music plays.